Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Glad that you're here. It's good to have cooler weather, even though it was 92 today. That's better, better than 102. So we're good to, good to see all of you. Looking forward to our Bible study time together tonight. First Peter chapter 1 will be in verses 13 through 19. Those of you joining us online, we welcome you. We always have a good crowd on Wednesday nights. And then sometimes it's not Wednesday, it's days after Wednesday you're watching this. But so whenever you're watching it, we're glad that you joined us as well. Looking forward to seeing what Peter has to say tonight. Good book, and there's some good things we've looked at so far. And tonight he starts getting into the what do we do now and how do we live in the culture in which we live, a t- study entitled Culture Shock. So I'm glad that you're here. Let's have a word of prayer, and uh, we'll get started. God, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word together. Your word is life. It is truth. It is inerrant, infallible. It is what you've given to us as you speaking to us. And so, Lord, every time we open up the pages of your book, we we hear your voice. And I pray that that will be the case tonight again as the Holy Spirit teaches us. May our hearts be open, receptive to what you have to say to us. Thank you for the day you've given to us, for giving us strength and energy and vitality to make it through the day. Everything going on around this campus tonight, I pray that you would bless as well. And we thank you again for Jesus, what he means to us, the precious blood of Christ that saved us. We're thankful for tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, we are to verses 13 through 19 tonight, going verse by verse through this wonderful letter. While you're turning there, let me remind you where we are and how we got here. It has now been about 33 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. This book was written about 63 AD. Jesus was crucified in 30 AD, so it's been about 33 years since then. Peter is writing to Gentile believers, not Jewish believers, but those of them like us, Gentile believers who trusted Jesus as Savior Lord. They made it back up to the um, northern part of, uh, of Asia Minor, what we know as Turkey today, up on the uh, south of the Black Sea. This is called the Pontius Bithynia area. You may say, well, how in the world did they get up there from Jerusalem? It's a long ways. Well, as you know, Pentecost, uh, 50 days after Jesus was crucified, Peter preached at Pentecost. 3,000 got saved from all over the empire. They went back to the empire, and the gospel spread wherever they went. That's where the gospel went to as well. And so it spread, and so they most likely were down there for Pentecost, got saved, heard Peter preach, went back up there. It's been 33 years. They've led friends and family members to Jesus. So there's a lot of people up there now, up on the Black Sea, that are believing in Christ. The problem is... The culture around them did not understand the Christian faith. It was misunderstood. One of the early misunderstandings of the Christian faith is that it was a bunch of cannibals. Why would Christians be known as cannibals? Well, we talk about drinking the blood of Jesus and eating the body and the Lord's Supper, and they took it literally. And so all of these rumors started about Christianity. It was a very misunderstood faith. When it first started, a bunch of cannibals, they're meeting in secret, uh, they're against culture, they're against progress, they're against all these things. And so Christianity was a very misunderstood faith. So they're up there trying to live out their faith in a culture that misunderstands them and a culture that is beginning to persecute them. Now, formal persecution hadn't started yet. What do I mean by formal persecution? 
That's where the Roman Empire makes it illegal to be a Christian. So it wasn't illegal to be saved at this time, be a Christian. It was just simply something they didn't understand, so they, uh, as a result, they would persecute it. So, as a result, wasn't formal persecution. Nobody was being killed for their faith yet. A few, but not many. That would come 30 to 50 years later. Basically, what's going on in the culture there is the it's kind of marginalized. Christians are marginalized. Uh, there was social persecution. They were being discriminated against. Uh, kind of the kind of per- persecution we face today in our culture. We're not. We're not killed for our faith. I didn't wake up this morning in fear I would die for being a Christian in America today. Uh, It's not illegal to be a Christian in America, but we are being marginalized and there's social pressure. There's mistreatment of colleagues and friends that were believers, verbal abuse, things like that. That's kind of uh, the persecution that we're facing. So that's why 1 Peter really does relate to us. Much like we are, First Peter relates to Christians in our culture. And so whatever he said to them really does impact us on how do you think in this culture? How do you live for Jesus in this culture? What are some things you do? So this book, I think, is very good for us to look at. So Peter wrote to try to stabilize this group of Christians in a culture that was marginalizing them and beginning to discriminate against them. So... Peter said there are some things you need to remember, and there are some things you need to do. So that's kind of what the gist of the book is. Now, getting to where we are, verse 13, if you remember the first two verses of chapter 1, he wrote the introduction, which was his way of saying, hey, it's me, Peter, I'm writing to you. I know who you are, know where you live, know what's going on. And then verses 3 to 12, we looked at the last two weeks, was a hymn. Was there a common hymn that the people would know? As I mentioned to you, I sang the doxology. I didn't sing it. I said the words of it two weeks ago because it's a hymn you're familiar with, and that's what Peter was doing, a hymn they would all been familiar with. He quoted the words, and that's verses 3 through 12. So tonight he begins verse 13, which now he begins his section of what do you do. First of all, first 12 verses, it's what you remember. Remember who you are. Remember how God uses trials. Remember you have a living hope. Remember your salvation can't be lost. All those things to remember, but now the first imperative. Now the first, here is something you do in this culture. And that begins verse 13. So look at letter A on your outline tonight. Prepare your minds for action, verse 13. Now, as I'm reading this, I want you to keep in mind... It's written by a person who knew Jesus very well when he was here on this earth. There's Peter, one of Jesus' best friends. Yes, that is that Peter. Um, He lived with Jesus 24-7 for three and a half years just before the crucifixion. So he knew him very well. Um, And so remember, this is being written by somebody who knew Jesus very well and lived with him for three and a half years. So first of all, verse 13, therefore, he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's stop after that one verse because he says several things I want us to take note of. First of all, the word therefore. 
Now, whenever you were in English class, you remember, if you see the word therefore, you stop and ask, what's it there for? And that means something went before it. You don't begin with a therefore if you hadn't said anything first. So, he's reminding them the first 12 verses of things to remember. So, after remembering all these things, therefore, here's your first action point. Prepare your minds for action. What's he talking about? Some of your translations may say, gird up the loins of your minds. That's what the King James says. Gird up the loins of your minds. What on earth was he talking about? Back in biblical days, men wore long sleeveless garments that went all the way down to either the knees or the ankles. Long flowing garment. It was kind of their, it was kind of their style. It, it protected them from the elements. But anyways, it, some of it was style as well. So it was a garment that went all the way down to your knees. Most of them went down to the ankles. Then they would wear a belt around that, that would, around their waist. And that was uh, called a, a, ma- a, a girdle. So not girdles like we know them today, but it was basically a belt. And then on top of that, they would wear what we would know as a poncho. It would go over the head, it would cover your arms, it would like a, when it's raining, it's like a poncho. They call that a mantle. So you've got the, the inner garment down to your knees, you've got the girdle, the belt, and you've got the, the mantle, like the poncho. Whenever men got ready to, this is the way you just traveled and the way that you did things casually. When men got ready to go to work, they would take off their mantle, lay it aside. They would take off the the poncho. They would take the long garment that was down around their knees and they would pull it up and stick it in their belt. Their loins, gird up your loins. It's called girding up your loins. You take the, 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 the garment, put it in your belt, in the loin area, in your belt. That's called girding up your loins. And you would go to work. You would run. Not many Jews ran. Most Jews very dignified. And they saw running as, as undignified and beneath them. Most Jews were very proud. Held their heads high. And walked very slowly. If you ever read in scripture as to why it would take them so many days to walk just a few miles. It's because they walked slowly. Because it was a source of their pride. So most Jews would have the long flowing garments. Head held high. Walk very slowly to get places. But if they ever ran, which is rare, that's why the story of the prodigal son's dad running to meet him was so powerful. If they ever did run, they would put the garments that gird up their loins and they would run. If they're going to work, they would put the gird up their loins and go to work. So that's the imagery. Now, Jews then, whenever they observe the Passover... They would eat the meal. Remember the Passover was symbolic, symbolizing the deliverance from Egypt, which is they had to hurry to eat the meal and then because the water is about to part, the Red Sea. And so eating in haste, the Jews in those days would eat a meal, the Passover with their loins girded and with a staff in their hand, ready to go. That's how they ate the Passover, symbolic of hurriedly going through the Red Sea, as, as Jesus told them, as God told them to do. So, it would be similar when you say, gird up your loins, it'd be similar to us to say, roll up your sleeves and get, get busy. Roll up your sleeves and go to work. 
So it's the same imagery. Gird up your loins means you're about to go to work. About to get busy doing something. Gird up the loins of your mind. That's weird. How do you gird up loins of your mind? I mean, whenever, whenever you roll up your sleeves, you know, so I'm going to roll up my sleeves and think. You don't do that. You roll up your sleeves to do something with your hands. Roll up your sleeves and think. That's kind of an odd phrase. So the very first thing he said to do, living in your culture, is have the right mindset. Begins up here. Folks, have you ever considered that in order to live in our culture for Christ, the battle begins up here with you? Not your emotions. It begins in your mind. So you have to have the right mindset as you go out every day to live for Christ. Culture that is hostile toward the faith, you have to have the right mindset to attack it. It's going to battle. You must, you must have the right mindset. So what he's saying is, gird up the loins of your minds. Don't let your thoughts hang loose like a garment that can trip you up. Don't let your opinions hang loose. Don't yet let your convictions hang loose. Don't let your values hang loose like a garment and trip you up. Those things you believe, those things you value, those things, those opinions you hold, those godly convictions you have, don't let them just hang loose. Make them be firm. If you're going to live for Christ in this culture, you're going to have to be strong in your convictions. If you live for Jesus in our culture, you're going to have to be strong in your convictions. You can't say, well, let's see, culture believes this and culture believes that. Well, they may be right. You have to know what God has said. And you have to be strong and firm in those. Don't let your convictions hang loose. Gird them up. Keep them tight. Keep them close. And don't waver from what God's told you is right. And what God has told you is true. Look at the next phrase. And being, we're spending more time at the first part. We'll, we'll move along quickly after this. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, what's he saying? Set your, uh, being sober-minded is an action. Set your mind is a state. Now, look what he's saying. Sober-minded, it means serious. The word sober in the Bible does not mean sober as, as opposed to drunk. It means sober as serious. So just translate the word, be serious-minded in there. If you're going to live out your faith in our culture for Jesus, you've got to be serious about it. You can't just be hit and miss about it. You've got to be serious about your faith. If you let down your guard today, spiritually or theologically, you will not be following the commands of Christ. So many Christians today in our culture have let down their guard. They believe things society believes. Believers that were raised in our church, believers that were raised in other churches, 
have now gone out to live their lives, and society has convinced them things are true that they've been taught otherwise. Society's convinced them things are true. The Bible doesn't teach. So be serious minded. Your mind is where the battle with cultural beliefs begins, not your emotions. Now, all these issues cause emotions. That's not where the battle starts. Yeah, you have to be, you have to have strong emotions. No, 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 not emotions. It's your mind. So, whenever you hear about gender identity, whenever you hear about gay marriage, whenever you hear about politics, things that are going on, we get emotional about these, but it's not the emotions where the battle's fought. It's first of all in your mind. You've got to know what's right. And you've got to be firm in what's right. Sober of spirit describes a Christian who is in full control of his speech, conduct, and thoughts in contrast to somebody who lets their flesh control them. The word that's used here is interesting for sober is the word nepho in Greek. It means to be calm, cool, and collected. So our job is not to be fiery against the issues. Our job is to be calm, cool, and collected, but serious in what we believe. Now, a lot of us, we let our emotions control the day. We let our emotions over these issues. We get angry over the politics, and we get angry over one side or the other, and we get angry over what people believe. It's not the emotions that should control you. Nepho, calm, cool, collected, but firm in what you believe and serious about what you believe. Then he says, set your hope, your mind in advance, make up your mind, set your hope fully, he says, on the grace that will be revealed whenever Jesus Christ comes back. We don't think of grace probably as what Jesus will bring back with him. Sometimes we think of grace as something that's already happened to us. Well, I got saved and God gave grace to me. No, you're going to need future grace too. So will I. We not only need grace in the past, we need grace in the future as well. So verse 13, then he says, set your minds first of all for action. Go to letter B on your outline. Let's look at verses 14 to 16. Be holy because he is holy. Now here are some misunderstood verses. Let's talk about them. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now let's talk about these verses. First of all, verse 14. As obedient children, we as Christians are to be like an obedient child before the Lord. A better translation would be children whose spirit is that of obedience. You know there are some kids that their spirit is just wanting to obey you. And then there are some kids whose spirit's not. Those kids that have that spirit that they want to obey... Those are blessings to raise, aren't they? And those that aren't, aren't. 
So he said, be a child before the Lord as one, you have a spirit that's wanting to do what he's told you to do. Not always trying to kick back at what he's told you to do. But have a spirit of obedience. He says in verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of this world. You know what the word conform means. If you have like a some type of shape and you pour a liquid into it, it's going to take the shape of whatever you're pouring it into. If it's a glass or if it's a plate, whatever, it's going to take that shape. So as we go out and live in the world, we are not to take the shape of the world. We are to take the shape of what God has told us, what we're to be, what we're to do, how we're to think. So don't let the world mold you. Let Christ mold you in the way you think and the way you act. Now, notice what he says at the end of verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions. Epithemia, it means, it means hot. Passions of your former, that means lost. Ignorance. Don't live like you're lost. Don't think like a lost person. Don't value like a lost person. Not only this time he calls it ignorance. Now, ignorance is a powerful word. Tonight, if I called you by name and I said, you're just ignorant. That's inflammatory, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty harsh. But that's the word that Peter uses to describe how lost people think. The word ignorance he uses there in Greek there is the word agnoio. We get the word agnostic from it. It just simply means not knowing. Gnosis is the word for know. If you put the word a in front of it, it negates it. So not knowing. Ignorance. Some theologians see the word ignorant here as proof Paul was, Peter was writing to, to Gentiles. They would have been ignorant of the law. They weren't Jews. So some people see that, that as, as proof. So don't allow your sinful, lustful passions that you had when you were lost before Christ control you. Many people in our culture, even Christians, sometimes let their flesh dominate their beliefs. So you hear phrases like, well, it's my body, I can do with it what I want. That is an ignorant belief from a former life when you were lost. Well, God wants me to be happy. Well, I have the right to choose my sexuality. I have the right to choose my gender. Those are statements that come from an unknowing, ignorant viewpoint before you were saved. Well, I need to be true to who I am. Those are phrases that you hear that come from a mindset of before Christ. When Christians say those, ouch. Because they should know better. That's what Peter's saying. They should know better. So Peter calls these type of statements ignorant. Now, if I said tonight... 
They're ignorant. Woo! That would make news, wouldn't it? Pastor First Baptist Church of Garland said homosexuals are ignorant. So those that are wanting to change their gender are ignorant. Those that you, whatever the issue. That would be hate speech. But yet that's the word Peter chose. A not knowing viewpoint. Don't form your values as a Christian based on an unknowing subset. So verse 14 is powerful. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Then over verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you should be holy in all conduct. Okay. We've got a controversial verse. Our standard should be the holiness of God. And it's interesting the way Peter wrote this. Peter was an unlearned fisherman. So he, we don't know if he knew the Greek language really well or not. Most likely he had somebody writing it for us, possibly Sylvanus. But if he wrote it himself, it's really interesting here because Peter uses a very sophisticated kind of Greek in verse 15. He places modifiers between the noun and the article, which was like the style the ancient writer Thucydides used to do 400 years before Christ, which was kind of a very sophisticated kind of Greek. But what he was saying was, it shows that one is to be like the other. So as God is holy, we are to be holy. Now, my question is, how? How can we ever achieve that? I would never command my son to do something I know he can't do. Tonight, if I were to command my son, son, I command you, you've, you must have the same experience that I have right now in preaching and pastoring. There's no way he can do that. He's about 30 years behind. So he, can phys- he can't do that. It's impossible. So whenever God tells us, you be holy like I'm holy, we look at him and go, how do we, we can't do that. How do you do that? And we're commanded twice in verse 15, once in verse 16. Why would God command us to do something we can't do? Is he setting us up? Is he setting us up for failure? Why would he command me to do something I can't do? Well, Hold on a second. That's how most of us think when we come to that verse. Be holy as I'm holy. But I want you to think differently. Whenever you hear the word holy, what do you think of? Perfect. Sinless. That's not what it means. The word holy all throughout the New Testament and here as well is the word in Greek, hagias. It does not mean sinless. It does not mean perfect. It means set apart. Now there's a big difference in God telling me to be sinless 
and telling me to be set apart from the world. Big difference, right? So with the word hagios, there is not a sense of moral goodness. Not a sense of, I am sinless, I am perfect. There are some people that believe that. Some Christians believe, since God said, you need to be holy as I'm holy, you can attain a state where you're sinless. I don't believe that. Scripture doesn't teach that. It doesn't mean you never make a mistake. It means you're set apart. Just as God is set apart from his creation, you and I are to be set apart from the world's viewpoints and thoughts and values. So if I think like they think, I'm not being set apart like he's being set apart. So it means to be set apart. Now, now look at it. Just as God is set apart, you be set apart. A Christian that looks just like the culture is not what God's talking about. He's talking about men and women, boys and girls, who are living their life separate and different than the world. And I want to tell you tonight, if you think different than they do out there, whoo, you're going to be blasted. And if you value things different than they value out there, whoo, you are going to be criticized and they're going to get mad at you and angry at you. That's what he's talking about. You're set apart. You, you think different. You vote different. You value different. You make decisions different. You have different opinions than they do. Doesn't mean you hate anybody. Oh, you're haters. I don't hate anybody. I just have different values than they do. Because I'm set apart. And you're set apart. Doesn't mean sinless. Doesn't mean you'll never make mistakes. I make mistakes. You make mistakes. But it means we're different than they are. Verse 16, since it is written, he says it twice, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter reiterated verse 15 again, but this time he quoted the Old Testament. He quoted Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, Leviticus 19, 2, and Leviticus 20, verse 7. Peter quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament writer except one. Peter and Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, quote the Old Testament the same number of times. But there's one book of the Bible that quotes the Old Testament more than any other book. Peter second. What do you think it is? Any guesses? Revelation. Absolutely. Revelation quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. Peter is second. So what he's saying is, be holy as I'm holy. Now, that was unique because all of the other religions of the day never commanded the followers to be like their God. None of them. They couldn't be like their God. They could appease their God. They could bring offerings to their God. They could bring sacrifices. They try to get on the God's good side. But never, none of them commanded them to be like their God. Except Christianity. 
And Peter here says it twice. So don't let a Christian think they can remain obedient children to God while fashioning their conduct like the lusts of the world. I see it. I know you do as well. Some people raised in church claim to be saved and they affirm things that the world believes, claiming, well, God's love. God's love. Well, God has also given us commands. Yes, He's love. But He's also given us commands on what to believe and what not to believe. So don't be shaped by what they believe. Be shaped by what God has told us. And then finally, let's look at verses 17 through 19. We'll close tonight. Let her see on your outline, ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Let me read verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now let's talk about these three verses and then we'll wrap up tonight. Verse 17. He says, if you call him on him as Father, God, who judges impartially according to everyone's deeds. So we see God as a judge behind a bench. He's not going to be favoring one over the other. He's impartial. According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. We should live with a healthy fear of God. With fear throughout the time of your exile. Exile? They weren't in exile. They were free. But they were living in a culture that kind of bound them in a sense. He called it an exile. So live that way. God judges impartially based on evaluation of our works. We're not saved by our works, but our works prove our salvation. Some say there's a different type of judgment. Some people say, well, the Bible talks about a judgment for the lost and a judgment for the saved. Um, here is judging the saved to be better people than we are. That's possible. Um, I'm not certain the Bible's that clear-cut on the different kinds of judgment. Some people believe that, and, and that's okay. That maybe, maybe, they may be right. I just don't think it's as clear-cut. Uh, but he says here, live before God in fear as one who's going to judge you. But now look at verse 18. 18, 18 and 19 are interesting. We'll spend more time there. Knowing, verse 18, that you were ransomed. What does ransom mean? Well, the ransom, it's interesting here because Peter uses the dative in Greek, which means he starts to blend images from the Old Testament sacrificial system to describe you're being a Christian. The Old Testament sacrificial system to describe how I'm saved. Now, what was the Old Testament sacrificial system like? Well, they... People would sin. There was no sacrificial sin. So you would take an animal, and it had to be an animal, with, animal without blemish. And that would become and, and sacrifice for your sins. And for the course of another year, you would be forgiven. It's a sacrificial system. So now Peter starts to bring that imagery over here. He, he uses the word elytrotheti. 
It means to be set free by somebody paying a price. So in order for you to be saved, me to be saved, to become Christians, we can't pay the price ourselves. Somebody had to pay it. In the Old Testament, the poor little lamb paid it, <laughs> gave up its life. And they would lift up the throat, they'd cut the throat, the blood would pour on the altar, and by that blood, all of Israel would be saved. So, you and I, same picture, it was the blood of Jesus. He paid the price. Because of that, we are set free. Mark 10, 45 talks about it. Luke 24, 21 uses the same word. Elytro theti, dot to Titus 2, 4. The imagery of the Old Testament to describe our being saved. Now, he also uses the imagery of a slave. We don't like to talk about slavery because it was a horrible time in our nation's history. But the Bible uses imagery of slaves all the time. In the New Testament days, there were two kinds of people. You were a, what they call a freedman, means you were free, you didn't have to answer to anyone, and there were those who were slaves. So you were a freedman or you were a slave. You became a slave one of several ways. You could be born a slave. If your parents were slaved, you were automatically enslaved, slaved. You could, your parents could sell you into slavery if they couldn't afford to pay bills. They had to sell children into slavery. You could be sold by your parents into slavery. Sometimes war. You were taken as a prisoner of war and you become a slave. And also you could be a slave in biblical days through bankruptcy. If you couldn't pay your bills and you had to declare bankruptcy. They had bankruptcy in, in biblical days. Rather than just being a legal process, you actually became a slave to your lender. So there were several ways that you, could, that you could become a slave. If you were a slave, it was possible. It's hard, but it was possible to purchase your salvation from slavery. How? Well, save money here and there whenever you could. But that usually didn't work because you couldn't make enough money as a slave to save enough money to purchase your slavery. So, most slaves just remain slaves for life. But if somebody came along and paid your lender the money for you, you could be free. And that's the picture he uses of the word ransomed here. It's the picture that you were enslaved to sin, as, I, as was I, and somebody came along and paid what I couldn't pay and ransomed me from slavery of sin and ransomed you from that. So it's a powerful picture that Peter uses to describe being a Christian. He says the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. In other words, you have a sinful nature that's passed on. Now, you still choose to sin. I do too. But we have a nature that makes us want to sin and a bent toward sinning. Now look at verse 19. We'll close. You were not, uh, verse, end of verse 18, knowing you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So it wasn't that God came along and had more money than anybody else to 
by your salvation. He ransomed you with something much more precious. The blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Once again, verse 19, the writing style that Peter employs shows a very refined, sophisticated kind of Greek that was found really in Plato and Josephus and not many other places like that. It was a subtlety that he used here with the apposition being placed second, meaning that Peter wrote in a theological way, making a statement as to who Jesus really is and what he did. Peter knew exactly what, how to phrase this in the most theological way. The word precious is interesting. Precious blood of Christ. The word precious means of great price or to be held in high honor or high esteem. Animal blood would never be called precious. Never be called, the word's timios in Greek. Animal blood would never be seen as precious. But Peter was there that day. Peter was there. He was watching from a distance from the courtyard the day Jesus was crucified. And the blood he saw that at the time he thought was just ordinary human blood. But later on, 33 years later, he looks back and says, oh, it was, it was more than just human blood. It was timios. Blood that was held in high esteem, high honor, blood of great price. Maybe, maybe he was thinking about whenever Jesus in John 10 had mentioned that he was the great shepherd and he would lay down his life for the sheep. Maybe that crossed Peter's mind, Jesus saying that as he was writing this. As the death of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 liberated the Israelites from physical bondage to Egypt, so the death of Jesus and the blood that he shed liberated us from spiritual bondage to sin. So in speaking of our redemption, Peter always emphasized our freedom from a previous life. And Jesus' blood was of greater value than silver or gold. And if Jesus had not been without spot or blemish, he would not have qualified to be our Savior. But he was. So let's look at the last two words of the verse. Very interesting, and then we'll close. Blemish, without blemish, and spotless. Now, the picture here is, remember the Old Testament, uh, the, is the condition of the sheep. Whenever they took a sheep in the Old Testament and would sacrifice its throat being cut and the blood would be poured, the sheep had to be a certain way. It had to be a sheep that the Bible said was without blemish. But Peter uses two words for Jesus, without blemish and spotless. He added it. He added a word that referred to Jesus' moral character, spotless. So he took the blemish word from the Old Testament from Leviticus and added to it, I saw this man for three and a half years. I lived with him 24-7. I never saw him do one thing wrong. I never saw him think one thing wrong. Man, spotless. 
The second adjective, it's interesting, determines the force of the first, not vice versa. So in other words, he was saying the person of Jesus and not the condition of the animal. So it's important. There is a spotless man without blemish. Lived 33 years, never even thought an impure thought. Who became your sin and my sin and took our place. No no definite articles used here either by Peter. He does it very strategically. That makes the lamb qualitative. So he wasn't saying Jesus was one of many lambs or one of many people. He was unique. He was spotless and he was without blemish. And because of that, you have a salvation that should never be compromised outside the walls of this church, ever. Because your salvation is too precious, much too valuable to take and say, oh, whatever they believe. Yeah, I kind of agree with them. No, no. You take what your Lord, the one who has ransomed you, what he said and say, that's what I'm living by. That's what I believe. Those are my values. and That's how we're to live when we walk out the doors. Let's pray together. We'll wrap up and then we'll, uh, we'll pick up with verse 20 next Wednesday. Father, I want to thank you tonight that you've given us a strong charge to begin the imperative part of the passage. God, it is my prayer that each one of us as believers in Jesus would not let our convictions hang loose like a garment. That those things we value, those things we believe, and the truth that you've taught us, we will hold on to and gird up our minds, the loins of our minds, so that, God, we decide, make a choice to believe what you've taught. And, Lord, I want to thank you for the precious blood of Jesus that covered us, that ransomed us, a debt we couldn't pay, freed us as slaves to sin. And so, Father, may each day that we live, may we value, hold in high esteem and high honor that blood of Jesus. Thank you for it. God, may we never leave and live in the world in such a way that we just believe everything that we hear, believe what's popular. God, may we always believe what you've taught, regardless of the consequences. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.